Now for the whole run of this program, we've danced around the question of whether the Cold War was a war. Was it? It wasn't, I guess. But for me at least growing up in its midst, there aren't many comparables by which to describe it to people who weren't there. It wasn't peacetime, exactly. Not when there were no fewer than 57 card-carrying communists in the State Department. Was it an uneasy peace? I'm not sure uneasy is quite the right adjective to describe the effect of being told throughout your childhood that you might, on any given afternoon, have 20 minutes to live. No, the Cold War was something different. And as it fades into the shadows of some implausible prehistory, I find myself clutching at its pant cuffs, begging it to show itself. Did I dream the whole thing? Is this the Snuffleupagus we were warned again and again would seem real to us, but would leave no trunk prints on the tablecloth? Is the Cold War just a melody from a dream that you wake up to record on your nightstand tape recorder only to find in the morning sounds like the bass line from the theme from Kojak? The Cold War is our three feet of snow that we waded through every day to school and back, yet despite it being in a handful of books on the four pages covering everything from Hitler to Obama that you cover in the last week of school before summer, I'm horrified to find it already sounds not quite true. It's not like the Cold War was the only time in history that an apocalypse was pending. It's been on tomorrow's weather forecast for Jerusalem for 2,500 years. It's a big part of the enticing sales pitch of certain religions that the end of the world is nigh. I imagine being a devout member of an apocalyptic cult is very like being a kid in the 1970s. Grown-ups are describing in whispers how we're all going to die in fire tornadoes for something we didn't do and it doesn't matter what we say or how sorry we are, there's nothing that can be done. At least religions offer you door number two where you get the wings and the virgins and the unlimited chewing tobacco or whatever else you want. Whereas the best the Cold War could ever offer us was that it didn't happen today, but it might happen tonight while you're sleeping. It's astonishing the number of people I recall who said things like, I hope the bomb just lands right on top of me because I don't want to live in the aftermath. That was some wise sounding shit to say in 1982, but it always sounded like horseshit to me. You're telling me that you combed your hair every day and never spat on the ground and tithed properly and punched your time card and drove an Oldsmobile even though you could afford a Lincoln and now you're just a compliant moo cow when Time Magazine tells you the Soviets have missiles in your strawberry quick? You don't at any time in your life want to stand up and scream, I want to live! You see how complicated this was for a child to understand? The born-agains told me all about the rapture, but the newspaper told me about the more likely rapture, where instead of abandoning their cars and flying directly to heaven, the elect were also going to be charred, rotting, and radioactive corpses, and those of us left behind would have to shovel them and their Oldsmobiles out of the way as we hunted through the rubble for canned ravioli and uncontaminated baby food. Well, anyway, I embrace all faiths. The point is that maybe the most profoundly disheartening aspect of the Cold War was the lingering whiff throughout that the death clock counting down the seconds was just the product of an unwinnable argument between personally unlikable 19th century British and German economists emboldened by the American and French revolutions to imagine a world without flatulent kings and czars in favor of 
conflicting visions of rational governments and a free exchange of goods and services between noble and principled comrades able to subjugate their naked self-interest in animal violence to the betterment of their fellows and all the world's children. Huzzah! To whichever of these theories proved correct ultimately and ushered in the philosopher's gardens where we all raised the vegetables of fellowship and dined upon the century and a half of enlightened self-rule that presaged us here, now, in 2020, the ripe banana at the fat end of the horn of utopia. Anyway, this movie makes the whole thing seem like a movie, by which I mean that these days every movie, including rom-coms and the great steps of Disney Princess Stan and the cold vacuum of the Elmoverse, they all have the central premise that the world is about to detonate, everyone will cartoon die, the blood wave will sweep away the unrighteous, and demons will have sex with you in your dreams unless two plucky teens and their computer Joshua can save an unwitting world from radioactive rapture ravioli and make it home in dad's Oldsmobile without even getting to second base before military agents impose curfew on your town. Honestly, it's occurred to me that maybe the Cold War wasn't actually real. My dad never mentioned it. No one ever sat me down and said, John, here's the plan. We all meet in our own basement next to the 50 days worth of water we're stockpiling. Like, my mom has 500 band-aids, but never once explained what we'd do if the world caught on fire. They just went to work every day and stressed about my grades and whether my sister was smoking pot and how was I going to get into law school with grades like that? Maybe the whole thing was a prank, a gaslight, to play on 12-year-olds so we couldn't imagine a future and would end up wallowing in grunge instead of questioning the deregulation of banks. Is it a game, or is it real? Today on Friendly Fire, War Games. Shall we play a game? Welcome to Friendly Fire, the trillion-dollar war movie podcast that's at the mercy of three men with little brass keys. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Pranica. Turn your key, sir! <laughs> I'm John Roderick. Why wasn't it three men with keys? That, that brings up a great point, Ben. Why is it just two? It should be the three-man rule. You want an yeah. odd number, right? No, you gotta pay that extra guy. This is the first time I've seen the keys spaced far enough apart that one person couldn't do them, <laughs> you know, just by putting both keys in in either hand. That's the point of it. But like on the like when you see them on submarine movies, it's like two guys that are standing directly next to each other going like one, two, three, turn. There's no place on a submarine that two guys can be further apart than arm's length. <laughs> yeah, that's probably the issue. So. <laughs> that's the thing about that scene, right? If uh, Michael Madsen does actually shoot his commanding officer <laughs> then the missiles still won't launch so the gun is really an empty threat in that situation turn your key yeah. sir it's like what are you gonna do shoot me then you're locked down here with the dead guy and you still didn't launch your missiles he's got like a pool cue in his other hand he's like trying to like hit the key <laughs> yeah exactly was this a regular watch for you guys in the in the 80s and 90s i feel like i saw this movie all the time and yet that opening scene surprised me watching it this time i had sort of forgotten that it existed that it was it was sort of the reason for the movie mm -hmm. 
Yeah. I've seen this movie one other time, but I didn't remember it at all. And I definitely didn't remember that scene. And it really surprised me how serious in tone this movie is the way it kicks off. Because it's kind of, I think that its rep is that it's like a, a kid movie for kids, but it's pretty, it's got some pretty like, pretty grim ideas in it. Yeah, it's not a kid movie at all. That uh, that scene, so I saw this movie in the theater. It was the s- spring of my ninth grade year. That's just perfect timing. I was a ninth grader, and this, and 1983, it was like peak Reagan, Cold War. I was living in Alaska. I had just stopped regularly going to Civil Air Patrol meetings. They still signed, sounded the air raid sirens every Friday at noon. Um, you could still hear the jets take off from Elmendorf at full afterburner when they were going up to intercept those bear bombers. And so it was, uh, th- it, this movie was extremely palpable. And that opening scene absolutely hit me like a lightning bolt. Another 20 minutes, we're going to start looking for you guys. Yeah, that's really something up here. I routinely think about that opening scene and have ever since 1983. It's one of the, it's one of the images in my head that, that pops up and I, I will say, turn your key, sir. Anytime it seems like I need somebody to do something and they're not acting fast enough. I remember you yelling that a lot, uh, like sound checking for live shows. Yeah, right. Turn your key, sir. That opening scene is like based on real events, right? Like the, there are examples in history of like a guy in a, in a bunker that made the right call having no information to base his decision on that prevented the the bombs from going off. Well, even, even more, I think uh, there are there, they did run tests where they did precisely that, like put their, put their crews to the test. Like, would they turn their key or not? And I think they discovered that a quarter of the, a quarter of the people didn't even, even when that was their only job. That was a really neat scene in the movie when they post game that at, in their boardroom and yeah. and they're and they're kicking around the idea like like statistically the improbability of all of the guys doing what they're ordered to do the argument that that scene is making the whole plot of the movie is that this subset of military planners and bureaucrats believes that the fact that there are human beings in the in the chain of command only makes us weak that was an argument that was being made on the editorial page of the new york times you know, it's the that's the pre, the premise behind Doctor Strangelove. So, our whole my whole life, the idea of being vulnerable to a surprise attack from the Russians and not being able to get those missiles off in time to completely annihilate them before we were completely annihilated. It was in the water we drank. It's so interesting how elegant the tic tac toe analogy is to this film story where, you know, a film like Crimson Tide uses uh, von Clauschwitz to make its arguments. Like this this film cuts in exactly the opposite direction and still makes an almost equally strong case for itself and its argument that like, what a, what a perfect analogy for a, a ninth grader to, to grasp in order to understand these issues. The, the ninth grader in me did not see the, the big plot holes uh, because the movie, the movie is very serious and it somehow manages to be 
fun and a and like a like an adventurous romp kind of like a teen sex comedy almost <laughs> well whilst also like really like savagely indicting the whole military industrial cult i kind of wish we had watched this like right on the heels of dr strange love for that reason because i feel like they are coming from a very similar place and go about telling their story in such radically different ways it's like it's kind of amazing that you can do that i thought it was a total reversal of expectations to have not the barry corbin character as the nihilist willing to destroy the earth but instead making the thinking scientist person that character like that it's professor falcon that is willing to sit in his leather recliner three miles away from a a nuclear target you know almost relishing the idea of of nature turning humanity back into the soil and starting all over again uh it seems like <laughs> a really edgy thing to uh <laughs> to to give to an 80s audience right that's that's kind of a reversal of character type that I wasn't expecting. When you when you think of Doctor Strangelove as being like such a ba- biting satire, it's often and I think we talked about it in our Doctor Strangelove episode. It's kind of hard to watch it now and remember that a Cold War audience was as sophisticated as as they were. And this is an uh, this is uh, for exactly the reasons you describe, Adam. Like a it's not a satire. It's a, a really heavy indictment of not just the military industrial complex, but the kind of n- the nihilism that comes into a world where it feels like nuclear war is inevitable. Yeah. And so how can you be a smart thinking person? And, and, and there, it's analogous somewhat to the way people talk about climate change now. When I, when I was in high school, I remember my high school girlfriend said that she didn't want to have kids because why would you bring kids into a world where they were just going to have to live in a post-nuclear apocalypse. Well, girls were saying anything to get out of having sex with you, John. Well, I know. I know. <laughs> and it worked. It worked because I started to cry, and then the day You was just over. went off and ruminated <laughs> about the, the post-nuclear apocalypse. I, I ruminated about it until I finally lost my virginity at 29. You want to ride home? Yeah. You know, there's a lot of that talk now, the uh, smart thinking people saying like, well, the the jig is up, right? Um, there's no point. There's no point anymore. And that kind of there's no point aspect to Professor Falcon. It's like that's the thing that galvanizes our heroes. Finally, it's not even it's not even trying to stop the war. It's just being so frustrated with his boomer reticence. It sure seems like uh, David and Jennifer's meeting with Professor Falcon fails to convince him, but then he does end up coming around. When she when she evokes, or w- rather, when she invokes Joshua, I think it causes him to realize that his fatalism, largely because he because his kid died, and if his kid was still alive, maybe he wouldn't be so cavalier about. Human, the human race. And when, when he comes back down the stairs and kind of l- watches them leave, I feel like that that's what he's thinking about. Yeah. I was obsessed with that pterodactyl 
RC plane that he had for a long yeah. time. That thing looked great. When he is revealed with the uh, with the remote controller for that thing, I uh, I turned to my wife and said, "Look, it's old Adam Pranica." And I got a big laugh. <laughs> God, it really only. is. It really is. <laughs> and then when he says, uh, "You're on my property and you weren't invited, please leave," I was like, <laughs> "Yeah, old Adam." The geography in this movie is pretty good, although. Uh, a lot of the things that are supposed to be Seattle are really filmed in LA. I was a little caught up on the fact that they seemingly took him to Colorado without like telling his parents or (laughs) giving him the option of having like a council present. There's some of that that's a little flaky, but, but geographically the flakiest thing is that Dr. Falcon is on the Oregon coast somewhere, but there is no place on the Oregon coast that looks anything like that. And they have to have to take a ferry boat out to see him. And there are no ferry boats on the Oregon coast or any geography that looks even remotely like that. No islands really. I have a, I have an a adjacent goof to this, the, your pedantic quibble, John, there's another internet pedant noticed something else wrong about that. Uh, when David is in the phone booth in the middle of nowhere in Colorado, he pronounces the name of Oregon Two different ways in less than a minute. To the directory assistance operator, he says Goose Island, Oregon, the correct pronunciation. However, when he calls Jennifer, he says Salem, Oregon. That clanged in my ears when I was 13. Oregon? <laughs> uh, wh- wh- how old were you, Ben, when you first saw this movie, do you think? I'm guessing I saw it in college on DVD. It's one of those movies like um, like The Goonies that I just didn't see as a kid. Like this came out the year I was born and I did not see it when I was a kid. So I think I rented it in college just to quiet all the people who are like, what? You never saw War Games? It seems like the sort of movie that your parents would have shown you because in, in many ways, David is like the precocious Berkeley kid. Too smart for his own good, you know? My dad just wanted to watch like Ocean's Eleven and Doctor Strangelove and stuff. Like they they weren't like uh, they weren't seeking out contemporary culture to expose me to because they kind of checked out of it when <laughs> when they had me <laughs> when when Nixon got impeached. And Adam, you saw it in the nineties, I'm guessing, or did you see it in the eighties? I remember watching this movie all the time on TV. It was a frequent watch for me. But is that eighties or nineties frequent watch? I mean, it would have to be early 90s. I, I don't think you're showing this movie to a 10-year-old, are you? When you were watching it, did it feel like a scary war film to you? Or was it like, this is a scary thing that could still happen? Well, here's what it was. It was like so many other 80s movies where like the the smart, precocious kid character is is smarter than the adults in the room and needs to convince them of that. Right using whatever means necessary. Like that was that was the genre. This was not a genre war film for me at that age. This was just a type of movie that I watched all the time. This was the first time I ever heard of computer hacking. It was the first time I ever saw a modem. It was the first time I ever heard of the idea that you could go change your grades <laughs> through a, hacking into a computer. When you saw Ali Sheedy, you became aware of sex. I mean, Ali Sheedy was the impossible, you know, there, we now have the, the manic pixie dream girl meme to kind of indict 
the the whole idea that you have a that you have an exciting and dynamic uh short-haired girl that comes into your world and makes the the middle-aged male protagonist turn on his head but this Ali Sheedy was the first sort of strong female lead of my movie going childhood who came into the film she never was she was not a computer hacker she wasn't like a fellow nerd she kind of was not even that into it what he was doing but she also was like the most captivating kind of co-conspirator with him yeah i i just fell head over heels with not just with her but with like the idea of her after I walked out of war games, I felt the ghost of Ali Sheedy not being in my life. <laughs> yeah. I think that I grew up watching a lot of movies like this where the, the boy character was like doing a thing that was interesting and, and technical while the girl looked over his shoulder and I would always go like, I do I do like dorky technical shit all the time. There's no beautiful girl looking over my shoulder. What, what gives? But there's very, there's very much a sense in this movie that Ali Sheedy is, is like outranks him in the sense of like, she's the get right. It's not, he's not the, Oh yeah. We hadn't yet invented the, the idea that he was going to be a billionaire yet. (laughs) I really like that. There was no seduction to them. The thing about Jennifer and David is that they're just together doing a thing and neither one of them is trying to seduce the other. And this was, this felt like a unique quality, especially in an 80s movie where whether or not you're a dork of a main character, you're, you're like trying to win over someone else. You, you, God, if I could just make her like me or notice me at all. And David doesn't do anything like Jennifer jogs up into his bedroom he doesn't he doesn't make that happen at all. And not just because he was preventing a war. Maybe the best part of that is that you're sort of dropped into like in media race of their relationship. Like that you get that first scene in the classroom where they're both making fun of the teacher. They're like sharing in that joy when you really take a teacher down like publicly. There's nothing better than that. But like you you just get a sense that they've been tight for a long time. And and it's again like completely absent that that chase and withdraw component. It was great and it felt real. Yeah, they have bigger fish to fry than the uh, than Cherche La Femme, I guess. The movie does feel real, but at no point does David ever ask Joshua if he can just stop playing the game. When he realizes Joshua is playing the game still, he never says, cancel. (laughs) Save and quit. And so in the absence of ever, when Joshua says, when he says, are you still playing the game? And Joshua goes, yes, of course. He gets, (laughs) he has a look on his face where he's like, oh no. Yeah. But he never says, quit. If there had just been that scene and the computer had said, I cannot because of the prime directive. Yeah. And then you zap the PRAM. That's the next step. You got to, there's like a (laughs) sequence of things you try. I wonder if that's a contemporary viewer seeing this with modern eyes, because, because this is a film that introduced all of those technologies that you described earlier, John, like no one had ever seen what a modem looked like before this movie and what it's like to 
to use a computer to dial 10,000 phone numbers. Like this is all brand new stuff. And I don't know if you're watching this movie, if you see him hang up the phone the way he does, like he takes it off of the modem cradle, hangs it up. If you, if you don't assume that that's the same thing as, as what we would consider quitting the game or turning off a computer. I think you're very right. The idea that the computer, once it was running, would was unstoppable. I think that probably I accepted that uh, idea hook, line and sinker. I didn't need to be told that. So you're right. I think, um, I think you just answered my own question for me. <laughs> we were talking about the reality of the characters. One, one pair of characters I want to talk about before moving on is David's parents who are maybe the most lived in most fully realized minor characters in a movie that we've seen in a long time. I feel like I've known them for 20 years. Yeah. They have two scenes. <laughs> <laughs> they are incredible, and they're incredible together. It's Cornish raw. I know. Isn't it wonderful? When the dad <laughs> steps out on the porch in his wide well corduroys with his cardigan yeah. sweater, I was just like, it's Ben Harrison's <laughs> fantasy outfit. <laughs> I, was, I was taking notes, to be sure. And then and then I noticed that David had a very similar pair of pants on when, uh, when Jennifer went upstairs. <laughs> They're that progressive leaning like it's okay that a girl goes up to David's room it's not going to be a big deal like like they're cool like that mom is a career woman who's who clearly is actually bringing home the bacon in the house and his dad had that technology of buttering the corn I I think that that set a trend for the next 20 years I think I think you talk about introducing modem technology to the world. This introduced <laughs> corn buttering technology to the world in a way that it's never been seen before. I, I love that corn buttering scene. His line, uh, why don't we take vitamin pills and cook the corn? Yeah. <laughs> Funniest line in the movie. So great. Yeah. I like a nice raw corn. I disagree with the dad in that, in that moment. Wow. That you can you can go sit in the corner with your raw corn. Both parents have to work because David has so much expensive gear in his teenager bedroom, right? Like You get the feeling that Christmas is very generous. They're they're giving him like twenty five thousand dollars worth of computer crap every Christmas. Yeah, if he's getting allowances based on good grades <laughs> where he's definitely not being rewarded for, for his scholastic achievements, right? There's an 80s film suburban white kid that is just a little bit richer than you would expect. Yeah. David in this movie has his own bathroom. Ferris Bueller had that, that incredible stereo system. Cameron's dad owned a vintage Ferrari. Ferris Bueller changed his, uh, his absence record on a computer in a very similar hacking scene. He did. Yeah, but John, did you ever grow up with a, a friend who was a Radio Shack kid? Because I knew Radio Shack kids, and I think one of, the, one of the best parts of being one is that you knew that the parts that you bought there were cheap. And I feel like part of the believability to David's bedroom is that, like, I don't know, how expensive could that shit have been at Radio Shack? It was $25,000 worth of computer equipment in 1980, $81. Yeah. But, but, but it's just the size and scale of the houses. These are really rich kids. Yeah. And I, and I thought about it watching it in the eighties. I don't think we, we interrogated that. And today I think if you made any of those movies and set the protagonists just, uh, 
incidentally in really rich neighborhoods, like their, their richness is not part of the plot because there's zero class conflict in this movie. Everybody is living in the same world. It's just a world where teens can buy airplane tickets for their friends. You know, he's like, buy me a plane ticket. And she's like, no problem. The ticket to Paris was 1100 bucks. And I was like, that's kind of what I would expect a ticket to Paris from Seattle to be in 2019. You know? I don't know. I don't know. No internet pet ant seemed to pick up on this, but the ticket itself was from Chicago to Paris. Yeah. Well, why did he do it that way? <laughs> I don't know. It, uh, it it made me feel briefly like that was some kind of goof because Ferris Bueller lived in Chicago, or maybe it was foreshadowing. <laughs> it felt to me like this is something he never intended on on going through with by by setting the departure airport as a, as a city that's not his own, he's not actually going to have to go through with flying to Paris with her. He just wanted to prove his, his skills, yeah. his elite hacksaw skills. He is pretty elite. The thing that Ali Sheedy does that is unforgivable is touch his monitor. <laughs> she does this early on, and you just can't do that, Jennifer. Come on, none of us have even heard of hacking at this point of course she's going to touch the monitor that's something we didn't learn until the 2000s and now we're unlearning it because everything's a touch screen i have to admit i fell just a little bit out of love with her in that moment like still very in love with her (laughs) you know i I lost a lot of respect i lost a lot of respect for david when he missed that one uh that one spaceship in the challenging stage of galaga i was like come on you're all set up there you got your, you know, like, I know you're distracted, but you got to get all those little red dudes in, in challenging stage. They're the easy ones. They're not shooting back at you yet. <laughs> also, he left like three players when he, when he bailed out of that game that time. That little kid owes him big time. Why are we at DEFCON 4 as we are right now? This movie presumes that everyone going to watch it is soaking in fear. What's incredible about it is that you can watch it today not soaked in th- th- that particular kind of fear. Oh, we got our own brand of fear in 2020. Yeah, you, got, <laughs> you got your own fears now. That's right. But you can watch this movie and it's not it's not a requirement. The fear of all of the stuff that's in this movie has dissipated to the point of it feeling like sort of I, I don't know what I, I honestly can't tell. If you're 24 and watching this movie, does it feel super vintage, old fashioned? What are they talking about? Or does it feel just like a teen movie that instead of instead of trying to put on a dance and and deal with a neighborhood bully, um, they're trying to prevent global annihilation? I, I can't situate myself anywhere other than where I am with it. The documentary I've been working on for a few years, my subject talks a lot about this time and living, you know, right near nuclear submarine bases and, you know, Joint Base Lewis-McChord and the Pacific Northwest and being like pretty sure that if if it went down, they would be in the blast radius of the first ICBMs and how like his, like the thing that he did with his friends at lunch was like draw draw your your fantasy bunker you know like what are the defenses how do you prevent you and and your buddies from annihilation and uh 
like the headspace of that is is very dark but like the combined like creeping fascism slash also the uh the global global warming slash the global pandemic of today feels like a co-equal but different existential threat and i can't imagine a movie that is this optimistic in tone being made about contemporary concerns interesting it would feel condescending or something i don't know the optimism is based on the idea that the problems that we were facing in the cold war were a product of a collective insanity and that that collective insanity was bad decisions, small bad decisions piling one on top of the other until we believed something crazy, but that everybody had good intentions. If you think about everyone in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. And they'll, they'll listen to reason when they hear it. Like it takes letting the, the first missiles drop to see if they were in fact real for them to see it in this movie. And that's like dramatic peak, but all of the technocrats that built this command and control apparatus are willing to reevaluate their beliefs at the end of this movie. Because they all, even the worst person in this movie wants to survive and have a good life for their kids and a picket fence and, Right. There's there's no one in this movie even there's not even a, a Buck Turgidson or whatever. There's no um there's nobody in the movie that just wants to have war for fun, except for Falcon, right? There's no one in the movie that wants to have war for weird philosophical reasons. Everybody else just feels like they're they're just doing their job and it's a crazy world. You've heard the stories, right, that Reagan watched this movie in the White House. He screened it, you know, on Saturday night. He and Nancy sat down in their comfy chairs and were like, let's watch war games. With their TV trays and their microwave dinners. <laughs> and they watched it and it blew his mind. And he called a meeting of the defense establishment and said, is this possible? Could this could this happen this way? And I mean, uh, uh, uh. <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately it was Reagan. So he didn't, he didn't do the thing where he was like, let's dismantle this crazy nuclear armament and live together in peace. He was like, I know we, we need to, we need a, we need star Wars, <laughs> but it was a, it was a, a question of this collective insanity actually being a matter that you could, in, you could imagine that we would all wake up, that we would shake our heads and say, like, what have we been thinking? I had a conversation with my father recently about how much less optimism it seems possible to feel about the world when you're my age or at my age than it did when when he was my age. And, um, you know, my father lately has been extremely fixated on bad news. Like whenever I talk to him, he wants to talk about murder hornets and fascism and pandemics. And I sometimes have to say like, dad, like, can you lighten up? Like, I, I can't focus on all of the reasons that I like, don't feel like I have a future all the time, you know? And like to, to him, it's like all he wants to think about and talk about. And 
I think maybe there's some reassurance watching war games that like over the course of, you know, the time he's been on earth, problems as big as this have kind of come and seemingly gone. But the problems that remain have become more entrenched. Like, I wonder if, if having seen time move the way he has for as long as he has, that's a reason for his fixation. Like, like some things have been able to be fixed during his life, but others remain and have gotten worse. There don't feel like there are fingers hovering over the button, though, now. And, like, this movie came out where it's, like, it could be gone like that, you know? Like, everything gone before you even know that it's about to be gone. And it's such a different quality to existential dread to think that that in a movie like this, it's smart people and a smart piece of technology that, that fuck it up somehow. But, like, existential dread today is stupid people doing a stupid thing that kills us all. Right. The saddest moment in the movie when I watched it as a teen and when I watch it now is the scene when they're sitting on the beach in Goose Island and he says, I wish I was just a regular person. I wish I didn't know. Yeah. And so I wouldn't have to sit here and feel regret for everything that I'm losing. And when she, when she's yelling at Falcon and she says, I'm only 17, I haven't done anything yet. I mean, watching that at the age of 13, uh, I felt my heart burst. It was inconceivable in 1983 that at some point in the near future, we wouldn't have to live through an apocalypse. And maybe it was because I was a teenager, but the idea that my life wasn't going to be interrupted either by burning alive or by living in a world where every one I knew and loved had burned alive and I somehow was limping through the wreckage. Like those just seemed like two very, very viable futures. I think you would be Mad Max in it, John. Oh dude, I totally would have, but let's that we'll save that for another show. (laughs) And the thing is, I think a contemporary audience now listening to that, it's very hard to imagine what that, how that ever could have actually been reality. Like now, yeah, We think about like, oh, climate change and Trump's fascism and all these things. And they are they all seem like insurmountable and terrible and and inevitable. But there's nothing really to compare to with no notice at all. There's a bright flash in the sky and the entire world is burning. And And that was as real to us as anything. I mean, it was absolutely real. So the thing about the thing about like older people now being obsessed with the news or whatever, one of the things I've learned growing up and watching the boomers before me is that when you're young, you expect that as people age, they will become wiser and they will collect wisdom unto themselves throughout their lives. And what I have learned from watching the boomers is that being old does not confer wisdom. And the, (laughs) the, the boomers as a generation have become less wise as they've gotten older. Well, this is great for my dad because he's not a boomer. <laughs> right. No, no. They, the silent generation just gets wiser. But I'm talking about like, like who is QAnon? <laughs> QAnon are the same exact people that protested Vietnam in 1971, right? It's the same generation. Somehow they have become stupider as they've gotten older. I don't know how. We, we're all drinking the same water. I don't feel stupider. Maybe we're not drinking the same water. Maybe because I have, I've been using Brita filters since the nineties. Maybe mm. yeah. your brain isn't quite so rotten as theirs. 
It's really interesting, Ben, what you say, because what the Cold War did was focus us. All of the other problems, classism, racism, global inequality, uh, feminism, feminism, uh, <laughs> disco music, saxophone, reckless folly, all of it was subsumed under the big problem, which was, are we going to survive as a as a race of people or you know or, or as a, as a species right and taking away that that common pressure you know the sort of balkanization of of concerns it did in some ways make the 80s a simpler time thinking back on the like contemporaneous films of this era that we've watched like I'm looking at our list, First Blood, Come and See, like other like early to mid 80s movies that we've seen are so far away from this like thing that I can't imagine being anything but like everyone's primary concern. Like when your thoughts wander, you start to think about the bomb and and like it it doesn't seem that way. It seems like we it seems like, you know, people got on, kept uh, kept doing things, going to church making movies. But you know, those, those movies that you reference, like the bomb is very present in, in Rambo. It's very present in, in come and see, obviously. How about Conan the barbarian? It's there, right? If you, if you, <laughs> if you want to look at those movies and, and put a filter on it that says, look for the anxiety of a people who believe the world might come to an end. Like all those movies are, they, they, that anxiousness is there. And I think, I think the turn to fantasy in films, you know, the, the hard right swing to like swords and sorcery and science fiction, a lot of the, what propelled us in that direction was that was a a need for some kind of escapism and a belief that the world could come to an end, but maybe like, does Conan take place in the future? <laughs> like, right. Star, like Battlestar Galactica takes place in the past. All that stuff. The the suggestion is, oh wait a minute, Battlestar Galactica took place in the in the past, and so did Star Wars, which means that maybe civilizations blow up. The music in this movie. It's very centered in the in the soundtrack. Like every every emotion is attended by some music cue, but it's also like the score is living in the Star Wars universe. Is the way it's orchestrated. I mean, it's just the era, I guess. But it um it helped me like enjoy this movie because it doesn't feel like entirely real. So you're saying that the that the score helped distance the scary realities from it and and placed it into more of a science fiction realm for you? Didn't place it in science fiction, but it placed it in in this era where like all of my other film like like the films that I grew up with all sounded like this and were fun movies, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. and there's not a huge outlier in terms of its orchestration. It's very, it felt very cozy and, and of its time. Yeah. It's funny. The movie does not locate itself in 
1983 by playing Devo and uh, Blondie or whatever. You know, it doesn't try to soundtrack you into some into like a cool youth culture. I wonder how much damage characters and situations like this did to the public school system industrial complex (laughs) because like the thing about David that makes him so aspirational to, to a kid watching this movie is that like the lie of the letter grade doesn't apply to him. Like David is smart or if he's not smart, he is skilled and those skills are given uh, an equal weight to the skills of the adults that are around him, you know? And so like the idea that, you know, it's so unjust that David would get an F in science or whatever, when clearly he's so smart. I wonder to what extent that like that inspired a bunch of kids to reject the grade system in some way. Like, it's not like that actually happened. It's not like kids rejected the grade system, but I wonder like to a student like you, John, like how much, how much easier, how much easier was it for you to reject that system when you had models like this in the movies that you saw that, that actually showed you a path to success and love by going your own way. uh, If, if you just only had a telephone and a modem cradle in your bedroom, like that you were just as good you know, my mom was a computer programmer and she bought me an IBM PC with 64K and two smaller disk drives than this. This guy had eight inch disk, disk drives. It was just like, what the, what are you, dude? Are you some kind of DJ? <laughs> we had five and a half inch disks. I was that kid, right? We were, we were um, like prosperous middle class people. My parents were divorced, but I had a computer in my house. I was programming in CPM before we even had DOS. Computers um, per minute? <laughs> yeah, in computers <laughs> per minute. That's what it was. And the the thing was that I was in the same, I mean, I was the same character. I was a f- failure in school. Teachers tried to humiliate me to get me to behave. When I sat down in the chair outside the principal's office and the principal came out, the principal sighed and slumped their shoulders and said, Mr. Roderick, (laughs) what a surprise. So when I watched this movie, it was like I was being handed a absolute like plate of M&Ms. Like everything about this guy is what I either thought I was or dreamed I was. The only difference was he was a little bit older, his house was a little bit nicer, and he had a girl who liked him. Oh, and also, he actually made it into, like, NORAD headquarters in Colorado Springs and changed the future of the world, which is what I imagined was going to happen my junior year, you know? Like, that was the difference between being a freshman and a junior. To me, it was just that somehow, by the time I get to be a junior, I will be on the geopolitical stage. You'll be crawling around in the ductwork of the Cheyenne Mountain Complex. (laughs) Yeah. And the thing was, by the time I was a junior, I did have a smart girlfriend. I just never learned to program computers. (laughs) It's fucking crazy how at all times there's always a Principal Strickland on, on your ass. Yeah. You know, this guy always got cast as that role. It's really weird that honestly, the only thing when I was a teenager that told me I was okay 
uh, was this movie and to a lesser extent Ferris Bueller, these movies like teen loser that actually has a heart of gold. Um, they did a better job than any adult in my life of saying like, it's okay. You're going to be fine. Well, this is something I've wondered if it has changed about like American childhood is that like when I was growing up, I also felt that if I didn't like perfectly do school and fit in and do all the things the adults told me that I was going to have a life of despair and misery when I became an adult. And I think that like the adults in my life were highly motivated to really make me believe that. And then like there were movies in my life like Ferris Bueller and later this that said not that. And <laughs> I uh, I wonder if like, I don't know, like I, I think that I probably wasn't cut out for a square job as like an engineer at the Rand Corporation and therefore nobody should have been like trying to prepare me for that life. Like <laughs> I, w- I like, I wish they could have seen earlier that like my like starting a bunch of nonsense projects would be the thing I did as an adult and became my, my job. That's the thing. They, they, they didn't. Right. And I think yeah. these days when I look at my daughter and she, and she says something bonkers, she walks out <laughs> in the street and she says, all of the pill bugs in this neighborhood need to get on the program and curl up into the <laughs> balls at the same time. And I, you know, I go, huh, that sounds crazy. But what I say to her is like, maybe one day you'll be director of pill bugs. And she kind of <laughs> looks over at me and like shrugs and scowls at me and is like, that's the stupidest thing anybody's ever said and skateboards off. And I go, oh, wow. But you know, like my dad would have looked at me and said, go to law school. <laughs> Radar reports two unknown tracks are penetrating the Alaskan air defense zone. How subversive do you think this film was in that respect? Or do you think it was just uh, accidentally subversive? Because like one of the interesting parts of this film is that it's it's it does not just isolate David as his as his own unique person with his own unique qualities. Like there's a there's a track for him in life. When he goes and meets the Maury Chaikin character, like those are those are adult people who have adult jobs that he works with. Like there's a, a professional track for him to follow that seems hopeful. You can just see the beginning of it. Right. Those two guys at the University of Washington who are working in the computer lab, who who the movie clearly is making fun of. That that's cruel if that's the case, but like I feel like those are two of the most lovable characters in the whole thing. Well, they are. But if you think about those two and the guy that works on Whopper directly. Um, yeah, this movie is unkind to those. Well, the thing is, the three of them like are the in some ways the first time you ever see on film a computer nerd. And somehow they established the three kinds of computer nerd they are that we continue yeah. to use to this day. Right. I mean, all we needed was That's one of Trinity. those guys to be in a in a Punisher T-shirt. And we would <laughs> a Punisher t-shirt and like yellow glasses. Yeah. They don't even give him a chair. He's in the Whopper room his entire his entire shift. He never sits down. All he ever does is come in is like come into the room and go the computer is out of control. But I don't think when David goes to see the computer lab guys and he says like hey can you hang out over here for a second these guys are a little skittish. 
they are establishing these characters for for all time. And yeah. David clearly does not want to be to go down this road. He's like there, he wants their advice, but he's a new generation. Somebody that's going to be into computers that also is not in a Punisher t-shirt. He's Ken Griffey Jr. wearing his hat backwards playing baseball. Like all of the old nerds don't know what to do when a when a girl walks in. Yeah, it's a it's a whole different thing and it, it it's it's such a brief moment in this movie but it really established because in 1983 there were computer labs in my schools and the kids that were there all the time were nerds and you knew and this was before nerd even was a thing but you knew that you knew that they were nerds and the idea of there being a cool dude who also knew computers was in the air I don't think anybody knew one yet, but the <laughs> idea was there that one day there might be a cool dude that also knew computers yeah. and the power of it, right? The, the, the nascent tempting power. What would it be like to be both cool and to know computers? I think we still wonder to this day. Yeah. We may never know. It's a bit what, uh, the Robert Downey Jr. Iron Man is trying to be also, right? Uh, like, yeah. also billionaire, but like that he, the idea that he's like, he's a guy's guy. One thing we know for sure is there will never be a cool billionaire. That's, That's just true. a fucking fantasy. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> I wonder, I mean, thinking back on that movie, I wonder if you could in 2020 start the MCU off with a, hey, check out this cool billionaire who builds a <laughs> war suit and saves the world. <laughs> One of the uh, things I read about this movie is that the technology inside Cheyenne Mountain with the uh, with the screens was created for the film, like rear projection technology, like vector based, specifically rear projection technology was not of the quality that it was as depicted in this film. And this wow. was in saying that all of the effects work that happens inside the room with how bright the flashes are with with what they're looking at on the screen that's all practical it's happening in the room and it's that bright and it's that sharp wow i thought that was amazing that's super cool yeah it yeah is a i cool mean that, looking that, movie. that room looks amazing my my wife uh, spends one day of work every week in a control room for the city and i when when this stuff came up on the screen i was like is this just like work and she's like boy i wish <laughs> This looked very cool to her. One aspect to the climax of the film that I really liked when when Whopper is is playing the game at at hyperspeed is that you still get the quality of the blinding white flash. Yeah, those circles appearing over American cities as the simulated bombs drop are right. Like that scene is is extremely scary. It really is. It's so effective. Like a testament to how well told this story is that you're sitting feeling that fear with them as they, you know, like, you know, for for a fact watching it, that this is a simulation run amok and you're feeling it just as much as they are who are not sure about that. You know, here's where I take us on a little journey down through John's photo album. <laughs> but in 1981... I was still pretty active in the Alaska wing of the Civil Air Patrol cadet program. 
And the summer of 81, uh, the cadets of my wing, the Elmendorf wing, we went on an encampment where we spent two weeks living in the barracks, like the, the old rotten World War II era barracks at Eielson Air Force ba- Base in Fairbanks. And during that two weeks, we lived as soldiers. We, you know, we wore uniforms. We were awoken in the morning, awakened by Reveille. We ran downstairs and got into formation and got yelled at by our drill sergeants and the whole thing. It was like a, it was like boot camp LARPing. Did anyone unscrew your head and shit down your neck? No, but all kinds of fucked up pranks and whatnot. It was like summer camp, but it wasn't, it was summer camp, but it wasn't fun, you know, because there were people yelling at you all the time. This was what, you know, that was what my parents thought would be good for me. I enjoyed it, but every day they would take us around Eielson and show us different aspects of what it was like to be in the Air Force. So one day we spent with the fire department putting out simulated airplane crashes, and then they took us out to Fort Wainwright and we fired howitzers one day. Uh, They took us up in airplanes and um, a couple of lucky kids got to ride in a T-33 but, you know, that was the cool. time when I went up in a KC-135 and they put me down, you know, there were four of us or something. And we got down in the bay and actually controlled the refueling boom. It was absolutely summer camp for for military nerds. But the highlight for us was they took us, at the time, Eielson was a strategic air command base, like a forward, not a forward base, but but they had a strategic air command command center that was kind of a, a a duplicate of what was at Cheyenne mountain. And we had to go through the whole thing. You walk up, there's a, there's a, a camera. You, the, the speaker says like, are you under duress? Someone had to well. explain to us what the word duress meant. They let us in one at a time into a tiny little box. No, sir. I'm wearing shirt and pants. Yeah. What do you mean? A duress? Uh, <laughs> you you went through like this this thing where uh, you went into a room, the door behind you locked, then the door here unlocked. You went in, somebody was looking at you through bulletproof glass, and then that door had to lock, and you went in a third. All this different stuff, you know, crazy stuff. And then we were in the big room where the two-story tall lit up map of Alaska was where there was a little dot with numbers under it for every single aircraft in the sky over the entirety of Alaska and Bering Sea. And they had every little plane identified and were tracking it and being in that space. And I, and this was before war games came out. So I had no, and I had never seen Dr. Strangelove. So I had no visual, sense of this before being ushered into this room and sitting there, the lights all dim watching this map and not even believing that it was possible that you could see every airplane in the sky from one place. And they all had little numbers. And the guy would say like, if, if you see a plane that doesn't have a number, it's, we haven't, you know, that's like an unidentified aircraft. The transponder isn't squawking or whatever. And then at night, Every night we would go to the mess hall, we would eat dinner, and then we would have like a half an hour at our own discretion 
And in the lobby out in front of the, of the mess hall, there was a missile command game <laughs> and we would line up and play missile command and what, and, and, you know, take turns. And while one person was playing missile command, all the other cadets would crowd around and watch. And that missile command game was the highest concentration of quarters <laughs> per square foot in the Western hemisphere. <laughs> And honestly, looking back at it, I've thought about this a lot over the years. I don't think any of us appreciated the irony or, or even appreciated the, the kismet playing missile command outside of the strategic air command headquarters for Alaska. None of us made the connection that that was at all weird or, or uh, appropriate. I bet you every adult in that room did though. I mean, missile command was a new game. It was a, it was like cool that they had it. The arcade version of that is is like vector graphics too, right? Like the kind of look like what what they had in up on the big board in war games. Looked exactly like it. So when so when you see those missiles coming in and the white flash of the of the uh, cities blowing up, it looks just like missile command. And missile command was. Uh, seemed like a really new game to us at the time. You know, this is like a pre defender universe when you're, you're playing space, you're playing like space invaders basically. So, so seeing all that represented in war games and having been there already in my own life, I, I felt like those special effects were, I mean, I thought that that's exactly what it looked like and it felt so much realer you know, just like chills up the back of your neck reel. That opening scene where the guys drive up in the Jeep in front of some little house out on the prairie and they walk in and <laughs> and there's a secret door. You know, a secret mirror that they uh, present their credentials to. Like none of that needed explaining to us. I love that there's degrees of secrecy that all lead to the same source, right? Like... People are aware that Cheyenne Mountain exists. People are aware of what goes on there. People are aware of how you go in through the gates even, but that there are also other tentacular options for entry and, and they could be hiding in plain sight like a, like a snowy cabin, I think is, is just great. It's, it's magical thinking. I tried to go to NORAD one time. What happened? When I was the, uh, when I was the showrunner for the Engadget show. And uh, they just took us to the to the air base in Colorado Springs, not the not the Cheyenne Mountain complex. And I was very disappointed. Boo. What do you make of the ending to this film? It ends pretty abruptly right in the room. That's it. This is another aspect of the film that I didn't remember. I didn't quite remember how the film started with that cold open, but I also didn't remember pretty much smashed to credits. Once, once the threat is over, it's got that false peak of, uh, of when they're like, you know, when they're all celebrating and they think they think the threat yeah. is gone and then, and then it's not, but also like the end feels very hopeful. Right. Surprisingly, like maybe they learned something here. Yeah. Like I think everybody learned something at the end of this movie. The premature celebration part made me think, like, what was Whopper doing with all of its time if it needed to run these <laughs> simulations to figure out a nuclear war strategy? What was it doing? 
<laughs> like it finally learned the lesson of tic-tac-toe by by doing this in public basically yeah very embarrassing this time watching it i was very much struck by the fact that when they all got done clapping themselves on the back someone was going to turn to david lightman and say your little prank cost the united states 750 million dollars <laughs> <laughs> yeah are you going to uh, pay that in installments or yeah. uh you're going to juvenile hall until you're 21 yeah never allowed to own a computer again like the some of those early hackers did get basically like press ganged into service of the united states where it was like you can either go to prison or you can work for us now or both it didn't end happily for him, I don't think. <laughs> he was in trouble and, and wasn't allowed to have a computer for a few years. But then he moved to New York with his mom and uh, was allowed to get computers again and met Angelina Jolie and hacked the planet. Huh. This is a very interesting Animal House <laughs> post-movie sequence here. <laughs> you know what? Except in, in Animal House, they actually had a legible typeface for mm. the credits. Yeah. I thought, I thought the War Games font was insane. How did anyone ever <laughs> sign off on red, unreadable font over a dark background? But it's so computery, Adam. Yeah, it's pretty fun. Computers. It's rate and review time on Friendly Fire. It's the one and only time we get to construct a rating system about the movie we've discussed for the last hour. And among the many really great visuals in this film is one that just continues to impress. Doesn't matter how old I am, I just can't get over the size of the blast doors at Cheyenne Mountain, we get a couple of scenes of them opening and closing, and every time, I am blown away by them. Here's a couple of facts about these blast doors that I looked up. They're 25 tons apiece. They protect the facility inside, which is also entirely on springs, making possible that in the event of an earthquake or a nuclear attack, uh, no part of the facility moves more than an inch. Cheyenne Mountain also has 4.5 million gallons of water inside and uh, massive diesel fuel and battery banks to act as, uh, as their fuel supply in the event of an attack. It's amazing what they have inside this thing. But those doors, those doors are incredible to me. And I think they also represent something interesting about the movie, which is like the secrets that our military keeps inside protected from the outside world. And I think to rate the film, we'll have to consider how well a film like this reveals those secrets to us for judgment. So on a scale of one to five blast doors, we will be rating and reviewing war games. I was getting to this earlier. I really like that David is smart, but not the sort of genius that we get in so many movies where like... One part of his life is great, but the other part of his life, like socially, is a total horror show. Like, he's pretty normal and adjusted. And I think that's good. He just knows how a certain type of technology works. It doesn't make him weird or an outcast. It makes him interesting. He's got friends at school. He's got a friend in Jennifer who is, like, curious about him as much as she may be infatuated with him. But unlike so many other 80s films, she's not like 
she's not like the boof from Teen Wolf, you know? Like she's not someone to defend against or or pursue. She's just there in an almost equal partnership. And I thought, like, in addition to what I believe is not controversial to say that Ali Sheedy is extremely beautiful in this movie, uh, she is also, like, crucial to David's plan. Because consider if she does not buy the plane ticket or or does not believe what David's telling her over, over the phone... The human race is exterminated 30 minutes later. It all comes down to her. That is a pivotal moment. When she picks up the phone, she's doing her dance stretches. To pick up the phone at all is one thing. To believe David is the second thing. And then to be able to buy the plane ticket is the third thing. She saves the world. She's also great about like going along with the thing. When she meets up at the airport, that was a nice scene. She continues on, like, the, the back third of the movie is is her and David as a team. I like stories where ingenuity wins the day. It's, like, very MacGyvery, like the way that, that David escapes from that hospital room inside Cheyenne Mountain. I like scenes like that where you, where you get to see spycraft deployed. I like that he's not smart at the adults either. He's He's, like, smart in a different way that's not making them like I, I don't think you should come away from a movie like this thinking that the nuclear defense of our country is run by idiots and buffoons and that is the problem like i like that the main takeaway of this film is that we should be thinking about how we defend ourselves and the technologies we use to to do so so i think there's a there's like low entertainment to enjoy and then there's like thinking entertainment to enjoy here and in a film that is paced like it is it's like so breathless and fast and fun throughout there's really not any dull spot in it it's all problems and triage all the way into the end and then bam we're into the credits like it doesn't even give you a moment to breathe before the credits start i think I think it's a great movie. I think it's one of my favorite movies I've seen on Friendly Fire. I'm going to give it the full five blast door treatment. I think it does what it sets out to do. (laughs) Perfectly. Wow. It is really good. I think that um, the comparisons to Dr. Strangelove are actually pretty favorable. Like they, they do kind of try and tackle... Similar, you know, the mutual assured destruction topic. And I think both add a lot to the conversation. And I think that the thing that I really took away from War Games this time is that tough situations aren't hopeless. And the like hopelessness is a choice that you make. Like they never, they never stop trying to solve the problem in this movie. And it's got great performances. Fun story, couple of little, little you know, hand wavy plot holes here and there, but overall, pretty rad movie. So, I'm gonna give it. I'm gonna give it four and a half. Cheyenne Mountain Doors. All right. I also want to say that when we were watching the movie and the dad wrapped the piece of Wonder Bread around his corn, my wife said, "There's your rating system." <laughs> so I just don't understand this world we live in at all. <laughs> I mean, what do you call that, Ben? What do you call it? I think I just called it the Wonder Bread Raptor on the corn. 
That's that's too much of a mouthful. It could never be the rating system. We've had mouthfulier <laughs> rating systems for sure. <laughs> I feel like the the new friendly fire T-shirt should be a, a buttered slice of bread and a couple of uh, and like a, a pair of headphones, and you're like rolling the headphones in the butter. Yeah, yeah. And friendly fire logo at the bottom. How about like a Che Guevara T-shirt, but it's Ali Sheedy instead of Che. <laughs> Is that a good idea? Hey, that's a Let's really good idea. Let's keep trying that idea. How about a Che Guevara shirt, and instead of Che Guevara's face, it's a piece of buttered bread <laughs> <laughs> with a corn cob in it. <laughs> that's an idea that won't offend anyone. No, people would love that. No, no cab driver would ever yell at us for that. <laughs> well, it's impossible for me to watch this movie as a... <laughs> like a reviewer or a podcaster. I can only watch this movie as a ninth grader. Um, there are several moments in the film where like a tear came to my eye or uh, my heart got stuck in my throat because the movie transported me to a time when I felt those, I felt those feelings um, I wasn't feeling, it doesn't make me sentimental. It actually can put me back into a place where, where I felt that kind of excitement. My only real beef is when the, when the, the bear bomber comes over the, up on the radar screen and the general says that he wants to scramble some F-16s out of Galena. I'm so, I was so mad at the time and I'm so <laughs> mad now because they didn't have F-16s at Galena. Those were, F, those were F-15s. They were F-15s. I was there when the F-15s, when the first F-15s arrived in Alaska to replace the F-4 Phantoms. And um, Is it possible that just being off one digit was an honest mistake? No. No. It's an absolute <laughs> unforgivable mistake. Also, when the, when the jets are scrambling to intercept the Russian bombers, um, they're not like Galena is way kind of up on the Yukon and those jets look like they're coming from Talkeetna, which is not the same as Galena. Anyway, that really made me mad in 1983 and I guess I'm still mad about it, but that is a very small thing to be mad at. I just feel like it holds up across the board. It feels as personal almost as any movie to me more than you know, more than even ones that I saw younger, like Bugsy Malone or movies that, that are like deeply threaded into who I became. This is a movie that happened right at the moment that I was like choosing a path and it influenced me. So it is a, absolutely a six blast door movie for me. All six. The rare, You've, you've given, I think you've given more than, more than five things like one other time. I'm just so happy. <laughs> Why are you happy? That's great. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, it's again, uh, destroying a very specific thing I've created, this one to five scale. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, also, I also like seeing perfect scores. <sighs> well, do you like seeing guys on screen, Adam? <laughs> Who's your guy? <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> few laugh out loud moments in this movie got me as much as, uh, as the scene with the tour group going through, 
And I love a well-practiced bit as much as anyone. And when they sit poor Mrs. Neely down at the station and have her hit a button, and then it's the button that turns on the alarm, that is just a delight. And and I, I mean, Mrs. Neely is feeling true fear at this moment, the fear that anyone else would. Uh, there's something so so honest about that performance. <laughs> I don't know if it's, I, I don't remember if it's wordless or not, but she does a ton in that little moment to make it totally believable what's happening. And that, uh, I don't know, I really liked her quite a bit for that moment. So Mrs. Neely is going to be my guy. Good guy. John, did you have a guy? My guy is the Jeep driver right at the end. Fuck! <laughs> That's a great pick. <laughs> God damn it. Was that your guy? <laughs> That's what I had written. Jeep driver at end is literally what I have written down on my Wow. I'll, I'll come up with something else. I'm sorry. That Jeep driver, man, you don't often see a scene where like the car is going to blast through the, the chain link <laughs> fence and see like it realistically depicted as harder to blast through a chain link fence than than you might think. Yeah. Did you know the, that that was an accident that they wrote into the movie? You couldn't have possibly have done that on purpose. It's, yeah. yeah. It, it feels rough. so dangerous and wild. Yeah. Uh, when that Jeep gets caught in that fence and then, but that Jeep driver, after they get out and they're running into the door, the blast door, he's, <laughs> he is really running for his life. And, and somehow, and this is the crazy thing. Like, the, cat, the protagonists of this movie have such a hard time convincing anyone uh, that what they're saying is true, but they clearly have convinced that Jeep driver because he's going for it. The quality of that running is is unique. Like this is the reason why you see running in movies often portrayed as as not running as fast as possible because you need to shoot multiple takes. It's one of the things that makes Tom Cruise running so unique and special is because he's running flat out every time. This Jeep driver is running in the same way. He's Tom Cruise running. Also, after an entire movie of not being able to convince anybody to take them seriously, they do get to crash the gate and then run past the security door at Cheyenne Mountain without anyone asking them any further questions. I know. Oh, the lady whisks them in now. She's the reason. Pat. She's she's waiting at the at the door, but Ben is right there. That's like a mile long run past 25 dudes with the M16s. <laughs> they also never explain the Jeep driver, right? Like they don't explain how old Adam Pranica had a helicopter and right. presumably he flew them to Colorado in it, but then there's like an ellipsis wherein he lands the helicopter, talks this Jeep driver into terrassing up Cheyenne Mountain with them in his Jeep. There's a lot sketchy there because you can't drive, you can't fly a helicopter from Goose Island, Oregon, a place that doesn't exist, <laughs> to Cheyenne Mountain, Colorado on like one tank of gas Yeah, in an hour it's the, and a half. It's the outbreak problem, you know? <laughs> they had to get on an airplane at some point. Uh, well, in lieu of, uh, in lieu of the Jeep driver, I'm going to go with the, uh, with the dude in that scene where they're all celebrating cause they think it's all over, but little do they know it's just beginning that, that guy that, uh, that tells the general, sir, you better get on your headset mm. is my guy. Bad news guy. Yeah. Bad news guy. You don't want to be that guy, but somebody has to be that guy, sir. Mm. Turn your key, sir. Yeah. <laughs> 
Well, dudes, um, I have a proposition to make. This is a pork chop record, but I had a lot of fun talking about it, and I kind of feel like this is also a main feed movie. It's a mainstream movie. Agreed. Here's my proposal to you guys. This is the pork chop movie, but we also put it in the main feed. We'll find a spot to slot it in. We're going to need to roll the dice, right, to find out what the next movie is. Yes. And nobody better to roll that dice than John Roderick. Well, not only am I the best one to roll it, but I'm the only one that has it. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And, yeah. it's the, and I do it every time. So <laughs> it's not like this was optional. What's optional right. is do I put the dice in a coffee cup? Do I make a corral for it out of books? Do I just toss it from hand to hand? That's, the Foley work isn't as good. Here, I'm tossing it from hand to hand. Yeah, it doesn't really sound like anything. I mean, there's a there's a way to live dangerously and just throw it on the table and hope it doesn't fall off onto the floor without the corral. I'm wondering how many episodes we're going to do while there's a full-scale roulette wheel behind John's shoulder. <laughs> no one's commented on it yet. We're just we're not even going to refer to it as an option here? I certainly will not. Hang on, here's what we're going to do this time. This time... I'm going to take this box of Legos, a giant box of Legos, and I'm going to put the ball in the box of Legos and use the Legos to randomize the dice. Here we go. Okay. It's like finding a 120-sided dice in a box of Legos. <laughs> and it is 107. Wow, big number. 107. This is a film directed by John Dahl from 2005, depicting World War II in the Philippines. It's a film called The Great Raid. Raid. Great Raid. John Dahl of Rounders fame. Oh, yeah. That's how I know that name. Starring Benjamin Brett, 500 American soldiers have been entrapped in a camp for three years. Beginning to give up hope they will ever be rescued, a group of rangers goes on a dangerous mission to try and save them. Oh, it's a Baton Death March film. Dang. We don't get enough of those. James Franco? Hello. No kidding. How, how is there a James Franco movie that I haven't uh, been advertised incessantly? <laughs> When is this from? 2005. Hmm. Well, wow. the fact that we haven't heard of it is not a good sign. <laughs> no, certainly not. I mean, part of the point of this is to review the films, and uh, even if they're bad, we have to review them. <laughs> um, but we're going we're gonna to leave it with Rob's from here. So for John Roderick and Adam Pranica, I've been Ben Harrison. To the victor, go the spoiler alerts. Friendly Fire's Pork Chop Feed is a Maximum Fun bonus content podcast. It's hosted by Ben Harrison, Adam Pranica, and Sean Roderick. The podcast is produced by me, Rob Schulte. Our theme music is War by Edwin Starr, courtesy of Stone Agate Music, and our logo art is by Nick Dittmer. We've covered a lot of movies in the Pork Chop Feed, and thanks to Max Fun Drive, it looks like we're going to be able to continue. But that doesn't mean we're done yet. 
make sure to head to MaximumFun.org slash join to pledge your support and keep the show going. We really appreciate it. And thanks for all the help. If this is your first Pork Chop episode, go back and check out all the other bonus content. You can now follow Friendly Fire on Twitter and Instagram under the handles Friendly Fire RSS, in addition to all the discussion groups we have on Facebook and other platforms. So join in the conversation. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next month with another Pork Chop film. Fun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Audience supported.